Junkies. You're watching Cannabis Culture News Live. I'm Jeremiah Vandermeer, editor of Cannabis Culture and Pod TV. My co-host, John Burfello. Johnny B on the Johnny couch. Johnny B. Johnny B. What's in up, the house. Pod TV? How are you guys doing today? What's up, guys? Hopefully you can see and hear us. Let me just make sure these mics are working okay. I think so. <laughs> Looks good over here. Here, you might as well have a talk of this. Ah, oh, what are you smoking on, Johnny? Something delicious. Wow, Jeff, huh? Jeff, 22 years behind bars. I know. I Fuck. Yeah. You know what? I mean, it was, it was, I, I watched it like live. I was, I, it was just, it was cool. You know, I was, I was, it was crazy. No, crazy 22 years. 22 like, years. A guy goes to jail for that long. Well, you know what? Pot. He had life, so at least he got out. But uh, I mean, you know what? Right. And times it, are changing. It's the three strike rule that worked against him. So if you get busted doing something three times, you're in big fucking trouble. Three joints 22 years ago gave him fucking, you know. Yeah, well, at least they uh, overturned this one. So we, Johnny sparked it off right away. We obviously, we're talking about um, Jeff Mazansky, who was just released from prison. Well, it's just huge news, and it's right in front of me, and as we're talking about it, and as everybody knows, and if you don't know, um, we're going to tell you more about it. Yeah, well, we're going to watch a video, actually. Rex, we got a video? I got the video queued up. Now, look, I see another video here. Oh, that one looks like a longer video. I've got just like a minute and something video. Let's watch this video. Well, okay, let's, actually, this is... let's just make sure that the chatter's... Um, hey guys, the chatters are there. What's up, guys? Okay, everything looks good. So everybody, everybody's happy. Looks everybody's and chatting? sounds good, they say. All right, let's watch. Everybody's this vid. smoking weed right now. Is if anybody in chat, if you don't have a joint or a bong or a dab going, I think you should share. Would you like this? No, I can't agree with that. Puff yes, pass. I would absolutely love that. I'm gonna do a dab actually. Look at this beautiful hash that I made. Yeah, on. Look at that. Ooh, hold that up. I know it's just a stable. This is like the second run. Closer. Second run hash. Tasty. Very nice. A nice joint you got there, too. Well, you know what? People think that I don't smoke joints. They're absolutely wrong. 100%. Absolutely wrong. Just letting you know, I smoke and consume all different forms of cannabis on a daily basis. Yeah. Hell yeah. Me too, man. As many different kinds as possible. Different types and ways. Okay. Let's watch this video about Jeff, and then we'll be back to talk some more. Yeah. Good for Jeff. These are Jeff Mazansky's first steps outside the Jefferson City Correctional Center in more than 20 years. Love you, Dad. Finally. Finally. Greeted by more than a dozen friends and family members, these were some of his first words as a free man. There's a lot of people in here that deserve the same thing. Hope they get it. Mazansky says even though he's out now, his work is far from over. It was cruel and unusual. Um, it's a shame. There's people in here that are in here for molesting children. And I've seen them come, go, and come again, and go. He and his family say they're focused on issues like prison reform and getting marijuana legalized in the state of Missouri. Mazansky was sentenced to life without parole for three nonviolent marijuana offenses under a law that's now been repealed by the state legislature. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, get this legalized. Nobody deserves to be in there for marijuana. Mazansky says he'll spend some much-needed time at home with his family, but then he'll get back to work. No, I'll be probably going around talking to a lot of people, and I don't know if I'm always going to be politically correct, but no, it'll be coming from my heart. In Jefferson City, Matt Evans, KNBC 9 News. There you have it. So, wow, you know, six pounds they caught him with, and he says he wasn't selling it. He's never admitted that he was selling pot. 
and uh, the governor of Missouri, Jay Nixon, is the government, Gover governor, governor, um, he actually allowed him to get out there. It was, uh, Nixon, what did he do here? He was the guy working on the case. Um, he commuted his sentence to life with the option of parole. So a Nixon did something good. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know if there's any relation, Jay Nixon, to President Milhouse. I'm sorry, I was uh, dabbing, smoking, dabbing. I was, and then smoking. Nice work, Johnny. So um, a little bit later in the show today, I wasn't able to put up a show post today. It's been a super busy day for me. But um, crazy busy day. Today on the show, in, in a little bit, we're gonna play a video um, by Chris Bennett, which is an interview with Martin Lee who is the author of Acid Dreams Yeah. and uh, another book. I think it's, what's the new one called? Smoke Signals. And Chris does a great interview with him. Well, because you didn't make a post, I figured maybe I will. Johnny? Well, thank you. Mm. But Johnny, you've had, I wanted to I talk guess. to you about um, your videos that you've been posting. I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, you said that one of them you just posted, it's already got 600 views, the one you posted this morning. Yeah. What's the name of it? It won't connect to your um, internet over there. I know. We're having internet, internet problems. problems. Um, that's just uh, First Feed. And that's, um, this is the room that I've been working on and uh, getting more into what I'm talking about is, is everything that's happening with Health Canada and what the governments are saying and stuff like that. So I took into everything they said in the courtrooms about HPS bulbs and, and fire hazards and all the problems they're saying was going on. And you know what? I built that perfect room. Because I'm going to continue growing no matter what happens with the court case because I'm growing my medicine. I mean, it's what I do. Um, so, you know what? This is my first new room uh, going with uh, LED, ceramic metal highlights. Um, and uh, we got the new Gavitas, so it's just uh, something new. And uh, at the same time, I managed to pick myself up the gas chromatographer, so I got a yeah. GC. Which I came and showed you all of the standards and stuff like that. And, uh, so, yeah, and you managed to fun. get those, the standards for them as well, right? Like you no, know, I got everything. Yeah. So, hold on a sec here. Why so, likes? it's about, you know what, um, people asking if I'm going to be charged for testing. I'm, I'm not going to be charging for testing because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not working. This is not something I'm doing. I'm, I want to do... This is not a business for it's you. It's not a business. No, not at all. This is about doing research and being able to give people information. So, asking a lot of questions. I'm going to be answering some questions and seeing what goes on and see what happens here. We're talking about uh, Tuesdays and maybe doing uh, a show for Pod TV and... Uh, Testy Tuesdays and Testy Tuesdays. Testy Tuesdays, you know, and see what happens testy with that. Tuesdays. So, um, well, that would be very cool to. I'd love to see how that how it actually works to well, learn be nice the to science see, of like, the gas with, 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 with the bubble hash or or the rosin or the like. What's the difference? The difference between the twenty five, the forty five, the seventy three and ninety. Let's find the difference in terpenes. It'll be you know. I'm curious. So. So and it basically what a gas chromatograph does is it burns a small portion of the material. And then it, it basically is giving you the weight of the gas itself. Is that correct? I'm like, what is it that's happening there? Well, that sounds. I, I'm. I'm. I'm just the guy that uh, like was able to work with an HPLC. Is it an atomic sort of weight? Like I it's don't. Giving you what is happening with the gas chromatograph? You're, you're asking me details yeah. that I'm just. Uh, you know See, what? How about put a people in chat, saying? These are things that I've wanted to know for a long time. The finer details yes. of how it actually works, because if it's being used for testing so much. Um, in the marijuana community, and we've actually talked to people at like Steep Hill, or what's the name of that? Steep Hill Labs. Steep Hill Labs, yeah. yeah. Um, I've had them on the show before. We've discussed it in detail with them, but we were never actually able to 
nail down, you know, I, there's a set of standards that's used, but what does it all really actually mean in terms this, of well, this THC is, and THCA? This and is what else? I was just talking about here. So this specific machine here, guys, this is made by a company down in the U.S. called SRI. And this machine is specifically for testing cannabis uh, residue solvents and extractions and terpenes. So um, it's it's uh, it's really it's uh, the software is called Quite Easy a brick Peak. Of a machine there. It's called Easy Peak because it's so easy to read and understand. So what's interesting in today's in today's society with the new legalization and stuff, which is really cool, is when you get all your information and you get your standards. Of course, I have my binder here, so mm -hmm. pop that side right there. Got Jeff. your homework with you. Oh, sorry. You get all your different terpenes, and these are all the different terpenes that I'm able to load into the machine, but on the back, they tell you the times and then how you can actually mark all the different cannabinoids so I know how everything is, whereas before, we were learning that process when I was working with uh, Dr. Hornby back in, like, 2006 and stuff like that. So uh, with all the new uh, technology that's offered today with... Uh, I'm legalizations. The um, it's it's really quite, it's, it's exciting. It's it's really exciting that they're able to get the standards, be able to get uh, the retention times, finding out how you can read the different um, cannabinoids on the graph, and then uh, be able to find out exactly what medicine that you're taking. Mm -hmm. Looking at the cannabinoids and seeing why CBC or CBG might help me with my pain, and for me, it's. I use certain strains for my pain, and now I can take a better look at them because I've never been able to take a look at the terpenes in them or anything like that, ever. I've tested the different cannabinoids um, years ago, but I have never looked at it in the last five years. So I have, I have stuff from five years ago. I have caps from the time. I have stuff that is 10 years old that I can test and see the difference of what cannabinoids are gone. So it's, it's really it's just me um, giving you guys some information. That's see, it. What, it, what it came down to before when we were trying to figure out exactly what these measurements meant, you know, they say... There's this much THC percentage in this plant. I'm but, looking at profile. You know, yeah, I see what you're. I know what you're doing. But this is the thing that I, I plan on. I really want to like get my figure this out because the percentages of what exactly? It's not of the weight of the plant material so, versus. So you're gonna weigh out point zero point point one of a gram, so a tenth of a gram. Mm -hmm. and you're gonna put that into 40 millilitres of solution. And that's going to agitate for about 20 minutes at a certain temperature so the cannabinoids dissolve in there. Mm -hmm. That then goes into a one, I then have to go through another process. I'm going to do videos on all this and explain what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be talking with tech support uh, down in California. So if there's any questions, so we can just get on the phone. I actually yeah. already have their after hours number because I'm getting really uh, used to talking to these guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at what gas chromatography really is. It's interesting stuff, just the Wikipedia page here and how it separates the different... It can different, show you different liquids. I know what yeah. uh, when I was working with uh, Paul with on the HPLC, um, that was a liquid. This one's gas. So his was a liquid chromatography, which was basically high price uh, liquid chromatography. This one's, these ones are a lot cheaper. These are not a hundred grand. They're not twenty grand. They're, they're 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 around the ten thousand dollar mark. So they're not they're not overly priced. Mm -hmm. Now um, and it, the ones that they the Steep Hill guys had, they had a mobile one, which wasn't the actual machine but it was a machine that would shoot the pot with a laser would measure what it looked like it would take a, f a photograph of it apparently on a micro scale and then it would compare that photograph to photographs that were in the 
in the um, catalog of other pot that had been tested. Now, this is how Steve Hill does this when they come to the expos and stuff. Okay. So they're not actually doing gas chromatography in those little machines that they have. They're just Those machines are matching up what you have to this catalog of info that they've made with the gas chromatography. Okay. Chromatograph. That, so. That's that's pretty cool. Like, yeah. I, I don't. I haven't really looked at anybody else. What anybody's doing at all? Like, I I know yeah. what uh, what they've been doing at Harborside because I was watching them oh, back Harborside, in two thousand and seven yeah. when we were working. So it was really interesting. But yeah, well, we'll probably you know do, what? We'll do a whole show on this because it, it's just going to be fun. It yeah, is. It's going to be it, fun. I want to see the process as it happens. And the best part about it is, is, is these are now accessible. You can get them in Canada. They're out of Ontario, so people can now access these machines. And with the, with the programs that are offered, we can actually we can it's do the research. It's expensive to have your pot tested now, isn't it? Like if you want I don't even stuff, know. You don't know. I have no idea yeah, what they charge. I have no idea I'm what's assume, out there. I don't, I don't think it's cheap because not everybody we has We used to do machines, um, so. $100 a sample, and that was years ago. Then it was like you do lots, 10 samples for $500, what Paul was doing back in the days. Um, but I mean, to me, it's testing is testing. I don't know what labs test in town. Uh, I know, like Matt, he has all the tests on on his uh, CBD Renee and stuff like that. So he knows his pricing and stuff like that. He would be the guy because they have labs on the island and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, I'm I'm not I'm not offering testing for. Uh, I'm doing testing for everybody. That's awesome, cool, of you, Johnny. Well. Um, I want a dab of something. You got something. I'm just like, you know what? It's 417. I know, I'm getting this going. Get a 420 dab. And until 420, we should have a little conversation about something that I've been working on. I've been super, super busy the last couple of weeks. Um, aside from my regular cannabis culture pot TV duties, building and implementing, putting into action, and it's all online now. The new cannabis culture store. It's cannabisculturehq.com. Cannabisculturehq.com. And it's kind of like our old store. Our old store. Uh, was really ugly though, and wasn't very usable. It was very slow. And well, you know what? It was just the inf- online these days where everything is, and and it was, it was just it wasn't navigated. You've done a great job on the new website. Yeah, the new one looks a little, little better with the help of some others Quicker. here, like Megan and Gary and Laurent. Uh, we came up with a pretty cool store, and you guys can go and buy everything you need but the weed there right now so there you go but actually there all of our stuff's not in the store yet we have a ton of stock that's not in the store we don't even have like any bubble bags in there yet or any of that kind of stuff we'll have um all of our stock in there in by the end of this week or next week at the very latest but um we also are working on glass blower collections a little bit of astro boy watermelon there dabbed out at 4.19, I give you a one-minute warning, Dub. Wow. One-minute warning, Dub. Oh, shit, that was nice. Did that good work? Lord. Yeah, that was yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Can't even remember what I was talking about. The store. Anyways, go check it out. You guys know it's a store. It has everything. Oh, I was going to say the glass blowers. What we're going to do is put a lot of heady glass in the store. So... We want to have collections from all of our I didn't cool scream. glass blower friends. Just so everybody knows, it's a one-minute warning. So yeah, guys, just letting you know. But probably 30 seconds to 420 now. So you might you, want to get those uh, joints rolled. One-minute warning to 420. See, I see Bong. people are going for it. Thomas there. Bong just texted There you me. go. Tommy Bong on the trip across 420, Canada right now. That's a happy 420. It is 420. Happy 420, everybody. The Cannabis Culture Lounge here at 307 West Hastings in Vancouver. 
If you're watching at home, come and join us. <coughs> so, um, yeah, Tommy Bong and his crew, the Kind Selections Boys, are cruising across Canada right now. Um, I'm not sure where they are. Oh, mmm, baby. And uh, Tommy, I think, has some video for us. Now, we, he doesn't have any for me yet, but I'm hoping to play it on the show sometime soon if we can get that over to me. Um, he said he's been shooting stuff. I don't know if it's edited, but... Oh. Trying to get as much in as we can for 420 right now. Oh. Okay, go, 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 go. Smoke, smoke, I hope smoke. you guys are doing the same thing, puffing hard. Because it's a long weekend. And everybody's getting ready for the long weekend. What is it? What month yeah. is it? Well, this oh, is September. It's Labor Day? It's Labor Day long weekend. Uh, Kids are going back to school. All my friends are going to be free days. again. Jody just walked in the house. Oh, hi, Great Jody. Great to see her. Jody. It's quiet. Yeah. It, the sun came out. <coughs> it's a sunny day. The, yeah. sunny, the sun came out. And Jody Emery in the house. Hi, Jody. Oh, and I didn't... You know who might be stopping by the building today? Um, did Mark pass this on to you at all? Raekwon, yeah, might be stopping by. Raekwon from the Wu-Tang Clan's in town today. We're going to go see his show tonight, but uh, he's hanging with a couple of our friends, and he's cruising around, checking out dispensaries and stuff. So That's if fun. there's, I'm not sure if there's going to be time or not, but Ray wants to meet Mark. Last time he was in town, I talked to him about Mark for a long time, and he was really interested in the whole thing. He actually, Ray wanted to film a TV show about weed. So he's really into pot. And, uh, but yeah, hopefully they'll swing past. Wu-Tang are amazing, 28 dabs later in the chat. See, a lot of the youngsters these days don't know about Wu-Tang because, you know, it's 90s hip-hop and uh, they, you know, they haven't really had any huge, huge hits lately or anything. But Ray is still hitting it hard. He just has a new album, Fila, out. Um, he, there's a bunch of uh, stuff he's been working on for a long time. Ray especially is doing a lot of really cool stuff right now. Same with uh, Ray's partner in crime, Ghostface, Iron Man. Um, but yeah, Jody is in the house as well and might be going to a Ray show tonight with us. The only thing I know about Wu-Tang is they ain't nothing to fuck with. Oh, Jody. Is that it? That's right. Jody says she knows. That's all you need to know is Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. That's all you need to know. But go check out 36 Chambers, the album, the first album. That's the, the bomb. Yeah. And Ray's album. Only built for Cuban links. I, I can't even comment on it because I can't really remember the 90s. Right. You were a generation before that. You liked 80s rap. You were like a Run DMC guy, I bet, right? Oh, yeah, I was Run DMC, of course, with Aerosmith. Yeah, baby. Walk this way. Yeah. Getting dabbed just, out. We just got to dab people out. The princess of dabs. I wish we had a cam over here. That was uh yeah that's the that's the watermelon I made that uh, the other day. Everybody says hi Jody in the <coughs> chat. Actually it was Booth who said it and 28 dabs with a heart. Wow. <laughs> wow. Getting hit. Does that work? We always get the wow. Tasty. That's why we like solventless extractions. Yeah. Jody I was telling him about the store, our new store. And we've, we orders keep coming in. Woo! So. Oh, wow. Look at that. Look at that. Wow. Someone's buying something right now. Are you guys buying something right Somebody's now? Somebody's buying something. Call right now. Oh, you have the Call limited, the limited edition. 
helps support cannabis our culture. organization. Every dollar you spend goes to something awesome. <laughs> Us. Pretty much, yeah. it goes Pot back TV into right what, what it helps what us build our new loves. studio and do the other things we like to do. It helps. Yeah, bring you got you a new studio coming. Show. That's gonna yeah. be awesome. Yeah, that's gonna be fun, man. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we're working on that now. Next. A, a lot of projects studio. on the go. I think you should film the whole thing building of the Pots TV studio, and you take different portions of it, and at the end of it, you'll make a little movie, and then you can have a little montage. The time-lapse people, style? The time-lapse style. <laughs> yeah, um, well, cool. you know what? It just happened. So now, now, you, now you guys are going to see the time-lapse and, 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 and little things that go on. It'll be fun. You know what? It'll be a fun little video. Maybe what? They're, the chatters are talking about... Old Jody stuff, uh -oh. centerfolds things. <laughs> not, not, nothing too bad. Yeah. <laughs> the internet. Uh huh. Uh huh. Internet. You never know. Oh well, this is cool. Young girls I, in the I, internet. I was, was going to mention this. So when I made that post about that car that happened there yesterday, on, on the thing, I got a tweet from ICBC at 418 to contact them. What they they tweeted you? They, they tweeted watch? me. Whoa, I, that's creepy. ICBC so, is watching you. I, I, I made a post on, on my Facebook yesterday about someone making a left-hand turn when it says no left-hand turn, and they're blaming me 100%. And I was like, well, you know what? You could tell 100% is you do the math, the right hand, right hand, left, left. It's like... What they so I made a, I made a post, I got a bunch, I got about 20, 20 different comments on it, and at 418, ICBC sent me a tweet to voice my concerns to the complaint department to contact them, and I thought that was like the power of social media. Was that? That is so bizarre. Hey, Carly. Of course they're monitoring you. Was that you. ICBC, the phone call with the angry voice? Why, and so Carly was calling ICBC, and she had it on to change her address, and she had it on speakerphone, and the... The, even the voice on the phone that was the recording, like telling you, you're, we we're taking your call, or yeah, it was angry. Like the voice was angry sounding. And we both looked at each other, we're like, oh my God, even the like recording at ICBC is aggressive. So, you know. Doing a rate hike. Rate hike. Uh, well, you know what? Craziest, um, I'm weird. sorry, but the amount of accidents that I see out there because of people texting and driving, it's insane. It is. There's, it's, Maybe that's why they're so angry. Shouldn't smoke weed and drive, but I guarantee it's safer than texting and driving. At least you're paying attention to something. That's true. You shouldn't be doing anything while you're driving, except for driving. Yeah. 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 But driving with your feet. I don't drive with my feet. <laughs> After that last accident, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> your hands are out the windows, woo, waving at me. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw your accident in action. Oh, yeah, it was witnessed live. 100%. I know. Am I going to have to go to court for that now? No, it's, I'm not suing them or nothing. It was just the point of the guy lied. He said he made a right-hand turn. I'm like, he made a left. Well, that was I a hit lie. Him. It, it wasn't that hard of I a hit. It. it wasn't even the big. It was hardly not that much damage. It was the fact that he lied. That's it. He came creeping up from the other side. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, anyways. We're enough about that. I don't know how we got off on that. Yeah, hey, one Jody, second. Do you want to come sit over here? Come. I'll share the couch. Yeah. In the middle. <laughs> Jody in the middle. Yeah. Hi, Jody Emery. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, what I wanted to share with everybody is that we're going to the Karma Cup in Toronto yeah. in October. It's October 16, 17, 18. This year, it's a competition of cannabis and and concentrates and extracts and uh, of all kinds and and, and lotions and wow. all sorts of topicals. Put on by Sarah Sunday. And glass as well. There's a glass element to this. And so it's a fantastic sounding event. It's the second time around. That's in October. 
And we're very grateful to the Karma Cup for flying us out there. Jeremiah will be there. I'll be there. Mark Emery will be there. So that's for sure. And we're going to document everything and bring it to you guys who can't make it. But for those of you who can, go to thekarmacup.com and check it out. We are now silver level sponsors so we're doing what we can to help them out which is not you know a huge amount really but it's i mean go to the website you can (laughs) check it out yourself but at any rate it's nice to be able to go out there and see everybody and remain in touch with the community especially at a pivotal time and especially when it's right before the federal election just a reminder it's right before that yeah harper government the harper government banned elections canada from telling people to vote so if you don't talk about it Nobody's going to know. So, yeah, Yeah. Elections Canada, under the Fair Elections Act, which is what it's called, Mm -hmm. and it's become law. The Fair Fair Elections Elections Act Act bans Elections Canada from doing any get-out-the-vote messaging. The only thing Elections Canada can say or publicize, really, is to send you mail to your house telling you where to vote on voting day. People ask about it. And and so they're not allowed to communicate. So if you go to my Twitter or you go to Facebook, you'll see there's a banner just saying, remind people to vote. It's messed up. It's crazy. Yeah, and Mrs. Universe, she won. She's a First Nation. She's saying, said, the very first thing she said is, get out and vote. We have to vote out. All the First Nations across Canada must get out and vote, vote because Harper does not want you to. And we're being, everybody is being harmed by Harper. If everybody actually went and voted, Harper wouldn't be there. So we must But nobody vote. goes to vote. And it's, you know, it's really easy, really easy. Go open up another tab because I know you're all on your internet. I know you've got a browser window open. So go open another tab and go elections.ca. Very easy, elections.ca. And then you just take two minutes, maybe three if you're a slow typer, but two minutes oh. is all it takes Anglais when you log in. French. It says, am I registered to vote? Just Francais. check. It takes two to three minutes. Maybe five if you're toking at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> but go look up Maybe and make 20. sure you're registered. And then I'm not sure about this. And again, it's hard to get any info now. But you might be able to vote anytime. Like right now, you could go vote. I think that's the case. I think it is. There's this bizarre section that kind of suggests that. I'll go research it and I'll share that around later. But for right now, the most or the least you can do is go and check to see if you're registered. <laughs> If, if that was the case, then, like, wherever I am, I would have my computer open and say, hey, you know you can vote, right? And get them to vote. So Sign them up. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's good. That's I'm glad. Cool. It, so that's the message you were bringing people. Yeah, vote. That message Hell out. yeah. Good. Good message, uh, Because here's the problem is that with Harper coming in, if he gets into power again... We are so Yeah, that's bad, screwed. bad news. The RCMP already got millions more funding every year for going after grow-ops. So, you know, gardens are even more You cannot take another four years of Harper. No, 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 no. This no. country will, like, cease to exist as we know it. So it's getting there already. It's really important. I, mean, I know is. the system's broken, but use whatever tools you got, and this is the only way. Overthrow a government or vote. That's the only way to get rid of them. So, well, you know, go yeah. vote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you suggesting, Jody? Only voting. Peaceful. Overgrowing the government. Peaceful overgrowing of the government. Yes. So, um, and on that note, check out Vancouver Seed Bank, bringing you seeds of all yeah. kinds. There's a new delivery of stock. They're in this building on the main floor in the back of the store yeah. where they were before. Is that all a rhyme? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> there does. you go. But yeah, they New are York's there. Calling. And they're very supportive. So That's interesting. New York, New York. New York. I'm good. That was really nice. I'm, pr- I'm feeling pretty good, if you can't tell. Um, oh, sure. I'll take it. Hit it. You sure? Hit it like a baseball in the Blue Jays game. I think, I think they're popular right now. 
Yeah, they're winning or something. I guess they've been really good lately. Oh, yeah. The Blue Jays, I don't know. Mark watches it. <laughs> no, not so much. But smoke your Jays with the Blue Jays. Um, Canadian team go. in the big smoke. <laughs> Are you ready for the woo tonight, Jody? Raekwon in town? Oh, I feel... I mean, this is a, is a nice opportunity. I, you know, I like, I like rap and hip-hop, but I don't feel like an expert enough. I couldn't... I don't want to... You know, if it, if it sounds good, I like it. You don't want to so. play trivial rap Yeah, pursuit. but what I do want to do is I want to drink a little bit, a little bit responsibly, and dance, because I think ah. we'll have a fun time. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't get out much, and I want to dance, yeah. and I'm feeling dance, the yeah. need to just, like, in, in, you know, because it should be dark, right? And nobody really cares, and everybody's drinking. And That's true. People just, do go out to these clubs to dance. They go, I hear about yeah. this. I hear about it. <laughs> it sounds like the young it's people just get wallflowers, <laughs> me and Johnny. We just stand with our hands in our pockets up against the wall. No, like, look at those jerks. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of phonies. I was one of the best seat dancers. I can yeah. seat dance pretty Johnny's good actually a break dancer. He does the most amazing flares and windmills. This guy, like, yeah, he's like popping and locking like, like a robot. It's crazy. Nobody would even thought it. Just all of a sudden goes in the circle and everybody's I like, learned, go, Johnny. I all of go my Johnny. dancing moves to Grease Lightning. I had two sisters, so you know what? I was forced to dance as a kid, but it paid off in the long run, so I'm okay with it. He's got the moves. Nice. He's John got Travolta the style. <laughs> yeah, he's got chills. This is nice. All right. Well, uh, anyway, it's Pot TV, by the way is brought to you by Cannabis Culture Store and Lounge. That's what pays for this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Pot TV was the first video website on the internet in Canada, along with CBC Television's website. So Pot TV's been around since 2000, 2001. That's a long time. That's a lot of history. And people yeah. who come down and shop here are able to pay for this to happen. Go shop so, at our store, CannabisCultureHQ.com. So yeah, I'm very proud of Jeremiah's hard work and everyone else who made that Cannabis Culture Store website come to life. I mean, we have a very small team. This is about it. <laughs> he does kind of all of it. Uh, Cannabis Culture in terms of staff and Brittany Mitchell Post articles. Um, but we don't... Do we have anyone else? Well, not staff. Wait, no, so Megan is doing stuff. Megan has some photos and Pot TV, and social media. Yeah, in terms of but staff, in terms it's of small. everything, website, everything, cannabis culture, everything, Pot TV. Yeah, lots of contributors. Is uh, yeah, and you have to deal with them also. So this guy does a lot in that online store. He thought, I'm tired of it not being there. I'm going to make it happen, and he did. So that's very helpful. Um, and you guys, by supporting us, uh, keep this alive. And you have a low battery. I 6%. just saw that. I know. I think it'll last for right. a few seconds well, at least. let's hope so. It's not essential at this okay, moment. Okay, cool. Well, I feel good. I hope you guys feel good. Um, I do feel good after those yeah. dabs. Yeah. Nah, thanks, Johnny. Well, yeah, thanks, Johnny B. I'm going to hand the mic over and get thanks, out of Jody. over here. Thanks, Jody. Jody E. Yeah, Jody E. For coming on the show. Yeah, that's Jody right. E. <laughs> Jody E. Jody <laughs> Well, we'll have fun tonight, I'm sure. Mark at a rap yeah, I show. See, I don't um, know if I've been to many rap shows with Mark. No. We go to hockey games and stuff. Corey's in the house. Uh, looks like she got shot. No, it's a footprint. Oh, a footprint. Somebody stepped on her. Oh, from Cannabis Day. That's hilarious. Oh. I thought it was like... I thought you were just like being symbolic of what happened on Cannabis Day. <laughs> Big boot print. Come over and come show, come show the... Yeah, the camera. You're right there. there yeah, you wanna, did you want to come on the show? What are you doing? Well, I'm, I was going to talk about the zombie walk. Oh, the zombie walk. Yeah, tell people. Okay, why do people do these zombie walks? I do want to ask. Let's talk about this. Yeah, zombie yeah. walk? She's going to, she'll come on in a sec. Walk like a zombie. I'm kind of like. I thought it was like walk like an They kind of scare me. 
it's kind of weird, a bunch of bloody people walking down the street and stuff. I see the novelty of it because it scares like people as they walk by and stuff. You know what? I don't like what <laughs> culture? Horror culture. My, I, my, fa- my favorite word, my favorite saying like is, the originals. is people like are amazing. That's about it. People are amazing. And they do amazing and strange and cool things. And no matter which way you look at it, it's an amazing little thing that people do. And they, and they all get all together and they all creep out and walk like zombies zombie on dorks. zombie day all around the world. Does this it's happen? It's like this cosplay this stuff. It's not just really a little thing off. that goes on. This is a huge thing. And that's cool. It is cool. I'm just you know, I think I might be a zombie. I, I'm, I'm I busy tomorrow. Damn, but, um, it's kind of cool. I like people dressing up in costumes and doing things. That's fun. And you know what? I think they should have some pot smoking zombies. You know, it should have, it's, I guarantee there'll be zombies smoking weed. See, the whole thing seems bong like zombie. there's a couple, a bong zombie, there's you a know? couple like, uh, popular bong. culture things to me. Yeah, bong You know what's zombies. happening with zombies? It's the same thing that happened with The Lord of the Rings. Because really what happened is one writer writes this book, you know, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. He writes this book. And then a bunch of other writers who are dorks take the, what he wrote and turn it into a genre of writing. Fantasy, essentially. This whole, like crazy out in the forest type of like hobbit style fantasy now it's a genre it's its own thing there's a hundred different billion writers of that and this zombie thing is the same you know romero the director comes up with this concept and then everybody just like copies it essentially and now there's it's a genre of movies zombie movies based originally on night of the living dead which is totally rad yeah yeah, that yeah. movie is so good. And it had a like, political message. The star of it was a black guy, actually. It's a fucked up movie. It's, a, it's actually probably the best horror movie out there, besides Evil Dead, which is also amazing. But anyways, that's my rant on, on fantasy and zombie movies. Yeah, they're both just copies. You know, it's all, the whole genre is just like exploited from one particular work or something. But anyways, um, yeah, I guess they do it in town. So they do this not just here in Vancouver, but they have these zombie walks. Mm. <laughs> Stop, dab. <laughs> yeah, shut up and dab. <laughs> but it'd be funny, I said this before, when those zombies are like, you know, walking by grandma on the street and she's like, what's this coming to? Oh my goodness. Doesn't, hadn't heard of the zombie walk before. I wonder if some people get scared or like drive there. Wasn't, didn't somebody like, I think this really happened. Somebody drove his car into one of the zombie walks because he was actually afraid of all these zombies surrounding his car. Yeah, pretty sure that happened. And then they started smashing on his car. Maybe I just made that up, but I don't think so. <laughs> well, if Corey doesn't come, I don't know what she's doing, but maybe she's powdering her nose. But I'm going to get on to Chris Bennett's video soon here. She's dressing up like a zombie right oh, now. Oh, that's what she's doing. Of course that. she is. She's oh, going to come out like a zombie and talk about the zombie oh, walk. Oh, shit. Did that dab really affect you that bad? I didn't even think of that. I know, but... You know, oh, maybe she's doing maybe, this maybe tomorrow? I don't know. I'm confused. I don't even know what I'm, I might, it is. Might, there might be a zombie coming around the corner. Oh, probably. Bong zombies. Bong zombie. I say bong zombie. Well, she doesn't come soon. We'll be watching Chris Bennett <laughs> by then. Um, I yeah, came. So Chris, I'm prepared with joints today. You're prepared with joints. No, you pre-rolled. Oh, you no, are no, not. no. It's not, well, that's because Johnny doesn't smoke joints. I do. Right. This is some actually tasty stuff that some friends gave me. That was and what is that? Uh, here, smell. Oh man! Wow, it smells like lemony. What is that? 
Nope, she didn't call it like a zombie. Um, I thought she. We thought you were getting zombie. There's a name to it. Bit by a zombie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're coming up. I don't know. What is that? It's weed. What kind? Ah. It smells good. I think it's uh, lemon haze. Lemon haze. Made me cough. Um. Hi, Corey. Here, I'll. Here, you can. Corey in the middle. It's the buffer zone. We, we, we're putting people in the middle like today. You can't have guy, guy, girl. You have to have guy, girl, guy. It's yeah, that's the way things work. How are you, Corey? I'm good, thanks. Are we sharing a microphone? Yeah, yes, <laughs> I guess so. What? Well, so you know what? Here, you can have a microphone. I'm going to roll weed. Okay. Why? Why do people dress up like zombies and walk through the streets? Well, you know, I actually, before I came here, saw videos of it and went, oh, that's so awesome, right? And I had to do it, and so I did it for the first time last year. And there's somewhere between four to ten photographers for every one zombie. Ah, of course. <laughs> people take, yeah. A lot of people taking photos. Oh, there's photos. hundreds of photographers. So if there's, you know, 200 people in the walk, there's 800 photographers. Oh, wow. Easy. So if you want to be a star, yeah. then... Uh, if you want to protest for Harper, dress like a Harper... Harper zombies. I think we need some Harper zombies tomorrow yeah. with all of that with all of that media coverage. Think about it, guys. So dress up like a Harper zombie. Yeah, Just saying. That's a good idea. Just saying. So I'm using Harper's my time zombie. as a cannabis day zombie. I figured if I passed on Jan or July 1st, I'd be pretty ripe by now. So I've got the shoe print on my on my shirt. Well, this is the VPD was a little bit harder yeah, on you than some of the other activists. Exactly. That's why you didn't, you know, they didn't, didn't realize that we I actually got We forgot about you and your under. body showed up in the lake later. <laughs> yeah. So I'll have a footprint on my face too. In Stanley Park somewhere. I'm going to say, so if, if someone does dress up like a Harper zombie and does a zombie, contact uh, medtainercanada at gmail.com and get some free swag. Ooh, oh, there you go, there you giving go. away stuff. So I, I want to see some pictures, and I think it'd be cool. Just post post it on, on the website and on, on the Facebook page, I should say. And, uh, yeah, you know, just... Uh, Is the zombie walk just in Vancouver? It's other places, too, well, right? Well, yeah, I think they have them other places. I just know that the Vancouver one is happening on, tomorrow. It starts at 3 p.m. The walk starts at 4, but you're supposed to assemble around 3. And then they call it either the trample or the shuffle begins at 4. Because uh, <laughs> zombies walk slowly. Yes. See, I've got my they noose shuffle. around the neck, right? So I've gone all out. Um, Do they have a dance, the zombie shuffle? <laughs> they should. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sounds well, like you a know, good last song. year they had a really good, great after party. I have no idea if they have one planned this year, but last year the after party was really dope. I so, bet. Best yeah. brains they ever served. I've never Delicious. seen zombie burlesque. <laughs> zombie burlesque. Zombie oh. burlesque last year. That was that's treat. Uh, that's pretty cool. See, yeah. I get it. I think it's cool. <laughs> I like the costumes and stuff. Well, it's, it's fun. The, it's, it's like, like a, a second, second Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> I think you owe me the coke. owe me the coke. It is like a second Halloween. It it's is. a zombie-specific Halloween. It is. So and I, and I'm trying to like hijack make it. So you can't do zombies on Halloween then. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be allowed to do zombies on Halloween. Only on zombie day. Well, if you've done a zombie that, if you didn't do a zombie, you could. Right. If you didn't okay. participate, you could, right? You're right. But I, I think it's a great idea, John and, and me, to go and hijack it for political reasons and, and <laughs> use <laughs> no, your idea of the. Johnny's Harper. going to break dance. Come on, are you going? The, Come on. Yeah, he's going to. He's got a whole routine worked out already for a zombie routine. It's based on Thriller, thriller the Michael yeah. Jackson that's Thriller. The, that's the dance. That's the one. The clap doing that one part and then turn their heads and everything. Yeah, I love really that. Great. John Landis directed that video. I love one of my favorite uh, directors. Blues Brothers. It's great. I think it's a great idea to you know find a reason that you want you know just find something you want to represent, dr dress like that, and go. 
Just make it a zombie. Zomb it up. <laughs> cool. Yes, well, thanks, so Corey, for bringing today, us huh? the intro, the info about the zombie walk. I can't speak. Yeah, John, that dab was nice. What'd you do to him? <laughs> what did you do to him? Um, yeah, a little sh bit of a short. Well, I don't know how short it'll be because it's 4:44 as we speak. <laughs> And Chris's video, the interview, is an hour long, actually. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's a really good one, though. So I wanted to play. It's an interview with Martin Lee, who is the author of Acid Dreams and other books. He's the guy who started nice. FAIR, the organization for reform in the media, like with Robert McChesney, I believe he started it with. And it's like one of the a really good group. Um, he talks a lot about marijuana and other things. I said, yeah, the video is fantastic. And Chris did a great job. It. So. Yeah, yeah, so that's coming up. I'm going to play that. Actually, I have, now that this shut down, I do uh -oh. need to plug this thing in. Hold on a second. <laughs> you guys keep talking. Oh, you know what else to we need to talk computer. about, though, is when is Neil back oh, in court since you're wearing the Cannabis oh. Day shirt? Um, oh, shoot. I did read it. Hold on. Um, maybe the 26th or so? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Cord's oh, all over. Oh, Jeremiah doesn't think. <laughs> yeah. Um, You're funny. I just thought you knew because you always know everything about all these well, things. Well, I posted about it, and I did, um, but I just don't recall. Because I was posting someone else's information, I wasn't there myself. Yeah. That's why it's not cemented in At my brain. At this point, they still haven't submitted enough information to no. Neil for him to make a case or to no, do anything. No, they finally gave him the last bit of discovery, I think, that day in court. How are you supposed to be prepared to respond to the discovery that they give you that day in court? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's just a real waste of time and waste of taxpayers' money to be and, moving forward with that. And, oh, it's September 24th. Is it the 24th? It's Deweed King in the chat. Hey, Freddie. The man. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, so, echo? you know, last time, the echo, is there an echo? Oh. And it could it just okay? be us talking over each other. It might be. Here, let's see if we can turn any of that down a bit. Maybe the plug isn't in all the way or something, it says. Hopefully there's no echo. Sounds like the plug isn't in all the way, it's, they say. There's something going on with our thing over there, Johnny. Rattle some chords. That's okay. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to well, play this video anyways. Yeah. Um, no, it's just no, 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 we're on, we're online. It just sounds weird. Um, according to jam in the chat. So pretty soon you're going to have to make sure that you've registered to vote to be able to vote, right? Yeah, well, Jody was just on talking about that on the oh, good. website. That's why we had it up there. Yeah. Well, no, I know that a lot of people aren't aware of that, and I've been posting the link for people to be able to register online. And I, a lot of people may not be aware of the fact that they have that amount of time. They have oh, to wait. They are going to be um, Something strange going on with the sound. Hold on a sec, guys. Okay, there we go. Maybe that's a little bit better. A little bit better. <laughs> that should hopefully be better. One yeah, we hopes. could. We actually could hear some of that coming through the speaker. It's weird. So how is uh, the new studio coming along? Um, well, it's empty and waiting to be built. <laughs> so, but we've we've spoken with the electrician, mm -hmm. and who's helping us build it, and we've sort of planned out exactly what we want. And oh, good. So yeah, I've been a little busy working on the store and other things, but that's the next project. So now on to Excellent. the studio. Excellent. And, uh, but we need to raise money for that as well. So if you mm. want to help out pot, 
TV studios help us get a new studio. You could always make a donation. Shit, we should make one oh, of those Oh, you might have pages. my first donation. You might have your first donation oh. from me. I want to see the studio really bad. Yeah, we're working on some uh, pot corporate sponsors, some of our friends mm. in the pot movement, like Johnny B, who already donated to us a good hefty sum, which oh, is really awesome. I that will the help. First one then. That will help make the studio. <laughs> yeah, and others. Um, Three Happy Cats is in. Sweet. And um, there was somebody else who was in. Who is that now? Uh, I know there was somebody else. Oh, Sarah Sunday and the Karma Cup. Ooh, goody. They're in, too. Oh, goody. So, yeah. That's excellent. And it sounds like we did fix our sound issue. Good. But we have our video up anyways. I'm just going to open this up. And well, I can't wait to see that uh, interview. It sounds going to be interesting. Yeah, for sure. This is Now, I was just going to talk a little bit about Chris Bennett. Of course, for those who don't know who Chris Bennett is, Chris Bennett is the urban shaman. He owns a store in the store downstairs in Cannabis Culture that sells sacred herbs. Like a dream within a dream. Books and <laughs> all kinds of other stuff. Really cool stuff down there. Um, and he is an urban shaman. Chris has written three books about religion and the use of marijuana and other drugs as a sacrament, which is <coughs> like, you know, a, a method of talking mm-hmm. to God, basically, oh, through, you know, getting high, essentially. And he's got some amazing work that he's done. And he's worked with other people like Carl Ruck and others to kind of connect the etymology of the word cannabosum with cannabis mm-hmm. and virtually proving that the Bible mentions cannabis and that Jesus was cruising around anointing people. The Christos, the Christ, was anointing people with holy cannabis oil because mm. cannabosum is cannabis. I'm trying to think and, of that uh, word. That... So, yeah, Chris is a pretty amazing guy. He's done some groundbreaking work There's actually a, like changing the sort of landscape yeah. of what we understand oh, yeah. about cannabis in the process definitely there's another word in says psychedelics there's another word and it basically theogen that's it entheogens that is the most amazing word and it's just so like it's not on the radar of a lot of people and it specifically means to reach a higher consciousness or to break the barrier into the unknown with that substance yeah so it's pretty amazing david david melma levine coined the term epiphanic the other day uh, uh, an epiphanic because they have a euphoric but he uh, likes the epiphanic it gives you an epiphany an epiphanic um, but yes an entheogen definitely something that you know you use a substance to connect with the forces beyond and these mushrooms and acid and mdma and all these things you can actually use to like seemingly connect with some inner source of who knows what the hell it is, man. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it feels good and it feels right. <laughs> and it actually is like, you know, people, there's people who've been writing about this for thousands of years that use these, you know, substances to connect with these forces to literally download information about the universe to your brain. Yes. That's the way they describe it. That you, it's this unconscious, automatic happening that this information or knowing knowledge Gnosis, knowledge, the, old, the way the Greeks used to talk about it, goes right into your brain like an antenna from some source beyond. So, yeah, people have been doing it for thousands of years. That's what shamanism and that stuff is all about. And uh, that's what, you know, there's some modern equivalents. I think our modern system of medicine and stuff kind of lacks an understanding of these things. Now they call them placebos. Just enough to ramble on. So, but that's Chris Bennett. And so, <coughs> Chris has been on the show many times. We played a lot of his videos. <coughs> Whenever he has a new video, I always like to play it. So, 
That tastes so freaking good. That was like a piece of lemon candy. Yeah, like lemon ice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was delicious. Oh, that's a different thing we were smoking. <laughs> that's amazing. I, everything's like lemon to me today. There you go. The taste was much, much more intense than that. <laughs> what is that? Uh, plugging into the mothership. Jam said plugging into First. the mothership. And Dab says he likes that term. Yeah. The endocannabinoid system. Well, you know, um, I'm also... Another place that I frequent and do a lot of volunteering is Free Geek, and they have a lot of old computers, so I'm just wondering if there might be any, like, you know, technology zombies that might crawl out of Free Geek and go to the zombie walk. I don't know. Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) There, I'm sure. Like, Borg style? Yeah. Oh, you could do the, like... I was thinking, like, a future zombie would would look like that, right? Borg zombie. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. The cutest of Borg. Is my geek showing? (laughs) Cool. Well... Okay, all right. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, and thank, thank you, Jody, for, for coming me. on. Thank you, Johnny, for coming on and Thanks others. Thanks for the dabs, Johnny. I can't remember if there was somebody else, but... I'm super dabbed everybody, out already. Everybody looks pretty chilled. I want to play the Chris video here. Peace. Jody's peacing out. Jody says peace. And now I'm playing this video through this old studio system, so it should just, like, automatically queue up. And um, so we don't need to... I won't actually see you guys after this. We'll see you guys... On the next show, next Friday, you can watch all kinds of shows on Pot TV all week long, from Monday to Sunday. Uh, tune in to Pot.tv for not only shows from here, but from Vapor Central. Right now, Vapor Central is being renovated, though. They'll be back. Yeah, they're, they're back they're on coming, the fourth or something. The, oh, that's today. Today. Oh yeah, I think they're back today. So wow, I can't wait to see how the new room yeah. looks and stuff. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, they yeah, send all been their old their stuff shows. to. Where did they send all their old stuff to? Another Vapor Lounge. Oh, they did. They I. Did. I, I I guess I haven't been paying attention. <laughs> no. but, um, I can't wait to see uh, Redbeard on Saturday. Yes, of course. D- don't forget to watch Redbeard tomorrow. If you're not at the zombie walk. If you're not <laughs> zombified, tune in to for the Redbeard show. And if you are zombified, tune in later for the yeah, repeat replay. episode on Pot.TV, where you can find all our episodes. We don't. We probably Ooh, should. That would be I know. I was going to say, when, that's what I was going to mention, is uh, Chris Bennett was talking... Uh, uh, last Hash Church, uh, and there was get some great uh, history there uh, is popping up on Hash Church, of course, every week. So um, you definitely have to log into that. It's every Sunday morning from 9 a.m. until we stop talking. Uh-huh. I think we can embed it. We should be able to embed the... Well, no. Um, like I said, well, Chris has been on there. Everybody just logs in. I'm pretty sure you can do something with it. Like, be a part of it. Yeah, yeah everything's interactive very much. Yeah, you can probably send Mark a message and say, "I'd like to come on to Hash Church," and he would gladly love you to be on Hash Church because no, doesn't YouTube. we need more girls. He does on it through there. YouTube. Sundays are day off, a way so um, do all so, that stuff. So there you go. We definitely um, will make that make make that contact. There you go. So um, if you're watching, you're getting a note, Mark. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, I'm gonna play the video. So peace, Pod TV. Love you. We'll see you soon. Enjoy. <laughs> well, one, of course there I got a joint. Well, there's a natural affinity between the altered state induced by cannabis, the altered state of consciousness, and the creative attributes of the human mind. 
Numerous artists have embraced cannabis as a creative catalyst. Uh, writers in particular have benefited from the associational fluidity that cannabis engenders, uh, how it loosens the power of analogy and unleashes the spoken word. And before the written word, of course, is the spoken word. Before literature, there's song. Uh, it turns out that um, in areas of the brain that are very active during a uh, young child's uh, life, when language acquisition is actually really happening around two years old, it's heavily concentrated with cannabinoid receptors, and they're firing uh, at a greater pace at that point than ever before. So there's a link between language acquisition and cannabinoid receptor signaling. Cannabinoid receptors, of course, are the receptors in the human brain and body that respond pharmacologically to compounds in cannabis. Before the written word, there is the spoken word. Before literature, there is song. Um, and there's a, a great many cultural um, reference points for cannabis as a speech-inducing agent. In many different cultures, even the United States, the CIA's predecessor during World War II, the Office of Strategic Services, referred to cannabis as a speech-inducing agent, as a truth serum, uh, get people to spill the beans, enemy spies, and so forth. But many, uh, long before that, uh, in different cultures, such as Central American Indian cultures, actually referred to cannabis, which they use in a ceremonial context, as the herb which makes one speak. In India, ancient India, Tibet as well, referred to cannabis as an herb that impels the flow of words. So there's a natural affinity for literature there. Uh, and there's a, um, there's a biological basis for this. Cannabis dilates blood vessels, including blood vessels in the brain. The more the brain's blood vessels are dilated, the more blood will flow through the veins, the more oxygen that is in the brain, the more oxygen, the more, uh, more thoughts, rush of thoughts. So there's a biological basis for that experience that many people involved in literature uh, uh, claim. Uh, so when you think about it, the first, one of the very first novels ever written uh, by Francois Rabelais Gargantua and Pantagruel, it was Pantagruel was him. It was a, he didn't identify it by name that way, but it's clearly it was an allegory about the hemp plant or much of that early novel. Uh, he was a satirist. And, and literature is again a relatively recent phenomenon. Before literature, there was the spoken word. There was uh, spoken poems and so on. Um, but ever since the 1500s, when the first novel started to be written, um, cannabis was always part of that. And in the French tradition in particular, it's very pronounced in the 19th century, we have the Hashish Eaters Club that emerged in the 1840s. It was actually um, stimulated by it. Uh, in the early 1800s, a French doctor, uh, Dr. J.J. de Moreau de Tours, visited Egypt, which was a French colony at the time, as much of North Africa was. Uh, it was in Napoleon's time, and it, it was an expansive French empire. Uh, when Moreau de Tours went to Egypt, he was like stunned by the amount of hashish consumption in the local population. Uh, but he, 
he perceived that it actually had a positive effect overall because he didn't see the same kind of diseases as a physician now uh, in Egyptian society as he was seeing in France. And he, he surmised that it probably had something to do with the fact that um, in, in Egypt, uh, hashish was the recreant of choice uh, rather than alcohol, which has always been frowned upon in the Muslim religion. Uh, but not so for hashish, it's been an ambiguous uh, relationship. But he brought some hashish back with him to France. And he was interested in the idea that if you uh, consume hash, and they were generally eating it rather than smoking it, um, it could make a normal person temporarily crazy, a kind of a hashish uh, insanity, as it were. Um, and therefore, that this model psychosis, and that's where the concept originated with Rodetors, that was, later became uh, very much part of the discussion, the scientific or the politicized science discussion around LSD in the 1960s, this idea that a drug can create, will cause a normal person to go crazy. Reefer Madness later sort of picks up on this theme. But, um, so he looked at that and he said that, you know, this could be a very useful tool, hashish. He took it himself. Because if a doctor takes it, he'd better understand how a, a person with mental illness was functioning. And he thought that was a good thing. Um, but where his impact was most keenly felt was not in the scientific world, but in the world of literature. Because he, he instigated this club that would meet every month in, in Paris, starting in the 1840s, the Hashish Induced Club, the club that's Hashish. And the most famous writers, the most influential literary figures in France were part of this. Victor Hugo wrote Hunchback of Notre Dame, Balzac, Flaubert, uh, Charles Baudelaire, um, uh, Alexandre Dumas, the, the, he wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, and then Three Musketeers. The most popular novelist of his day, these were the preeminent men, French men of letters. Of course, then later there's Arthur Rimbaud and stuff, but that's after uh, the Hashish uh, Ears Club already uh, passed. But nonetheless, this sort of marked a point in French literary history. It was a moment in which that the relationship between literature and hashish would crystallize that relationship in the hashishers love it. And sometimes, actually, in the literature itself, hashish figured as a, as a part of the plot, or a, uh, certainly in the Count of Monte Cristo, where Sinbad the sailor takes hashish and you know, proclaims it's it really speaking about it in these wondrous tones. And, um, so it was, and again, these were the respected writers, the most popular writers, and they were speaking, they, they were portraying hashish as sort of a, a ticket to this, you know, mystical beyond within, something very exciting, and it, how could it not affect how uh, people looked, how, you know, it, it didn't have the stigma that hashish would later acquire in France and other countries the following century, where why does it have a stigma today in France, because who, 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 who is that for? It's the Muslim kids from North Africa that were doing it in the ghettos of France. It was their way of coping, you know. That's what they had. And it became associated just like it was pegged as, with the blacks and Latinos in the United States and the, the run-up to prohibition, the same kind of racist conjunction. But um, it, 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 not just in the French tradition, but you have also uh, in, in the English tradition uh, a kind of a hashish eaters club that emerged, the Rhymers Club, in, in, uh, later in the, in the century. And was associated with the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was an occult group. Uh, and among its, its notable members, even though I guess it's supposed to be a secret society, it was no secret the fact that William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, the future Nobel laureate, uh, was part of the Rhymers Club and part of the Order of the Golden Dawn, also Aleister Crowley and so forth. Looking at the liter literary connection, uh, the figure of William Butler Yeats is very significant. But here is a, a Nobel laureate, a, a, a great Irish poet and playwright. Um, 
who was part of the Ryers Club, who partook of both hashish and mescaline. Uh, peyote, he didn't like peyote all that much, but he seemed to like hashish. And he was part of a circle in the late 19th century uh, Paris that was involved with the Theosophical Movement. Um, Madame Blavatsky, she had launched that in, in New York. Uh, and she had a cult following, as it were, literally, in, in Paris. Uh, and, and, and William Barton Yates was a part of that. And they, there was a group of people around a doctor, Dr. Luis Alphonse uh, Cagnier. He had a circle around him of uh, devotees, if you will, not necessarily toward him, but toward, toward the, these monster doses of hashish that they were consuming, you know, way beyond what they would consume at the Hashish Eaters Club in Paris in the 1840s. And there, when they would eat the green paste, the poets and the writers associated with the Hashish Eaters Club, you know, they would get really buzzed an hour later or so after eating a sumptuous meal at this nice hotel, and they'd have an uproarious time. Well, Kaganay's circle was, was also taking hashish, but it was like 10 times the amount. And I mean, the, the hashish eaters club, they, they were getting blitzed on what they were taking. So what these guys were doing in the 1890s, and Yates and these, you know, and, there was, and with the express purpose of, of uh, stimulating occult insights, seducing the muse, was all the literary and the occult were very much overlapping in this phenomenon. Obviously, not all men and women of letters were into the occult, but there was a very interesting segment where it both overlapped. And then the key personage, to my mind, is Yeats, given his stature in the world of letters. But certainly, there were many British writers who, who were involved with cannabis in one way or another. Lewis Carroll, the cat. You know, Alice in Wonderland, the caddis, hookah smoking caterpillar. Um, there are several others. Jack London wrote about his experience with uh, Hashish, he's an American writer. Uh, Oscar Wilde, and on the other side of, of that. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, amazing stuff he wrote. A short story in which he describes his encounter with this, and he's on a ship, and this quirky guy who has this vial of golden oil that cures all maladies. And he's talking about what we now know of today, the hashish, you know, cannabis concentrate oil. It cures, it can treat tumors, it does all these amazing things. Stops epilepsy dead in its track. And here, Robert Louis Stevenson having a fictitious conversation with a mysterious man on a ship in the 1890s. The guy wrote, you know, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, very much of a, uh, people think of it as a, you know, a cocaine thing going on in England at the time, for sure. But cannabis was very influential in the literature, and certainly Robert Louis Stevenson, a bohemian, you know, of his day, a hippie before his time, very much into uh, a very significant character of this. The winter-spring edition uh, 2013 of O'Shaughnessy's, a journal of cannabis and clinical practice, uh, published and edited by Fred Gardner, um, and I'm, I'm an associate editor of that project. Um, this is a, a little piece called The Hipper Mr. Jones. In The Amateur Emigrant, Robert Louis Stevenson writes about Mr. Jones, an excellent friend he met on the passage from Glasgow to New York. And he quotes now from um, uh, the amateur emigrant. He was from Wales and had been most of his life a blacksmith, strong and skillful in his trade. His was the nature that looks forward and goes on from one year to another and through all the extremities of fortune undismayed. And if the sky were to fall tomorrow, I should look to see Jones the day following, perched on a stepladder and getting things to rights. He was always hovering around inventions like a bee of a flower, 
and lived in a dream of patents. He had with him a patent medicine, for instance, the composition of which he had bought years ago for $5 from an American peddler and sold the other day for 100 pounds, I think it was, to an English apothecary. It was called golden oil, cured all maladies without exception, and I am bound to say that I took of it myself with good results. It is the character of the man that he was not only perpetually dosing himself with golden oil, but where there was a head aching or a finger cut, there would be Mr. Jones with his bowel. Now, Stevenson made the acquaintance of Mr. Jones in 1879, a period when American patent medicines were quite likely to contain cannabis and or opium. The fact that an English druggist was willing to lay out a hundred pounds for formula suggests that Mr. Jones' golden oil was effective and potent. There's no determining its contents now, but what ingredients besides cannabis and perhaps opium could have had such healing effects? Stevenson, an instinctive bohemian, had smoked plenty of hashish on an earlier trip to France. He came from Edinburgh, Scotland, where William Brooke O'Shaughnessy's went to medical school, and where seeds uh, that William B. O'Shaughnessy sent from India, this is the Gunja seeds, were grown out for possible medical use, and they actually made uh, uh, some of the first cannabis tinctures with that way. But, uh, and then hashish was referred to by Nietzsche in very interesting ways, and if one is, uh, if one is depressed, one, one has to take some hashish. That's a, I paraphrase what he said. I don't know if he, he, what, he, he was depressed. I mean, he had syphilis, he went crazy. Um, I don't know whether he himself took hashish, but he said the one reference in Nietzsche uh, was very positive. Um, and there's other, you know, in, in the Germanic tradition, there's a lot of interesting writers involved with, with hashish or mescaline. There was an early mescaline circle in Europe in the 1930s. Hermann Hesse was involved in that. Ernst Junger. Um, uh, I think Dr. Albert Hoffman was aware of that. going on in Europe now for 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Uh, long before Huxley wrote about it so brilliantly, so beautifully. Um, and, and very much the psychedelic and the, and, and the cannabis world overlapped very much in the 1960s, in some ways less so beforehand. Uh, but, uh, but there are forerunners of that. For you look at the surrealist poet. The 1920s are a very interesting period in Europe in terms of hashish and um, the literary scene, the artistic scene. You have Walter Benjamin in Germany uh, writing about Ashish and brilliant little prose. Um, and then you have the surrealists, Robert Dino, uh, Jean, uh, uh, Jean Cocteau, who are, who are getting uh, buzzed on hash and listening to Louis Armstrong play, you know, uh, Chop Suey Blues or whatever it was. And, and, uh, and you had the phonograph invented at this time so they could hear jazz and they were getting stoned. The, the circle of, 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 uh, of writers around Andre Breton and so forth, they're very much interested in dreams and provoking altered states of consciousness where from whence the surrealist inspiration would you know, emerge. And, um, so they're very, very much bound up on these circles. And it was not only writers, of course, because the surrealist movement was um, you know, multi-tiered artistic phenomenon. You had uh, musicians, Eric Satie, and, and painters, Dali, and so on, and many nationalities. And you know, it had a necessity. Of, well, it was very much about. It was very politicized and, and, and turbulent era. This was the 1920s. Fascism was rising in Europe. You had the futurists in Italy uh, were in kind of a problematic relationship with what became pro uh, fascism, but also were interested in, in, um, in drugs and mescaline. Julius Evola 
uh, who was considered like um, the uh, Herbert Marcuse of the fascist movements in, 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 uh, in Italy uh, after World War II, really. But he was involved with the Mescaline Circle. And so you had very interesting kind of radical politics on both sides of the spectrum, if you will, if you look at it in area, which probably isn't the best way to look at it. But, um, uh, and the, uh, the drugs, I think, were always, uh, and cannabis in particular, were always part of a, uh, if not marginalized, a sort of more radical perspective, a more critical of mainstream, ever since the Romantic movement uh, in the early 1800s, uh, drugs seemed to play this role in European society. Uh, and the ironic thing is the drugs come into the colonizing societies from the colonies, always from Africa on the slave ships, from the, from the Arabs under French domination into France. There's an interesting uh, uh, power dynamic there that goes on. It's almost like subversive, you know, in some unconscious, brilliant way. In the United States, there, the, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, folks involved with hashish in the 1840s, 1850s. You know, it comes over as a patent medicine um, Really, in the 1850s, it starts in the U.S. and, it, and increasingly become incorporated in, in that way. But there was a, uh, it kind of trickled out. It was kind of a recreational uh, uh, cannabis scene, if you will, that was recognized and written about, uh, not extensively, but mentioned in, um, I think in uh, Scientific American, it might have been, or in early writings on the record, that there was a, it wasn't just a matter of medicine, people were doing it for, self-exploration for fun, and it, was no, it wasn't seen as, it wasn't looked down upon, we're talking about the 1800s. So it was a very libertarian time, if you will, in terms of uh, pharmaceutical access in, in the United States, assuming you were white or had some kind of privilege, you, anybody can go into a drugstore and get these things and use it themselves. But then you also had literary folks in America who were always interested in the first, of course, this fits you Ludlow writing the hashish unit, and um, that's the kind of prototypical in some ways the preeminent 19th century American literary statement about cannabis. Um, he was part of a, a cadre of literary bohemians that included the likes of Walter Walt Whitman and, and Louisa May Alcott, uh, who wrote about uh, uh, the uh, cannabis-infused bonbons that the women of society ate. And, and, uh, of course, she's the author of Little Women, you know, one of the preeminent women writers in, in American history, certainly in the 19th century. And she's writing about hashish. Um, uh, Jack London, I mentioned him, but he wrote an essay about his experience. And then again, for the most part, people weren't smoking it, they were ingesting it. That was, it was part of an oral tradition. That was the main way of, that was the main relationship that American society had, either through medicine as a tincture or as a literary or self-experiment. Hashish would be consumed, it would be imbibed, uh, it wouldn't be smoked. Maybe very end of the century, in the 1800s, people started picking up on that part of it, um, and that, and that, uh, and then in the 20th century, the experience is more as a smoke substance, I think, because uh, Mexican Americans who, who brought it with them um, during the Mexican Revolution, I think that was their religion, and you know, that gets passed along uh, in American society, but it always stayed marginalized. Pascal Beverly Randolph was a very interesting character, um, ahead of the first. Uh, uh, Rosicrucian Society, in, in apparently underground secret society in the United States. It's a long connection to uh, occult mythology, and I don't mean by mythology false story, but a kind of a mythos, uh, the, the order of Rosicrucian fiction. It's linked to, in, in kind of right-wing paranoid minds, and, 
uh, you know, ultra-Catholic nut minds uh, uh, with uh, uh, Freemasonry and anti-papal um, uh, plots and so forth and so on. And, um, uh, so he's involved with secret societies, and he's a very, very important figure in what, what can be called like the American spiritualism moment. It was, again, it was not a Judeo-Christian thing. It was a kind of a, a and just by the fact that it, they were, you had the spiritualist phenomena seen that uh, later, uh, um, Madame Blavatsky uh, from, from Russia, she becomes a really preeminent figure in that phenomenon. Uh, Randolph was in some ways before her, and he died the year she it took his own life, he, the year she formed the uh, uh, Theosophical Society in, in New York. I think that's 1856, if I'm not mistaken. But it was in the mid-1850s. Um, so there's a, it's, it's an outsider phenomenon, American spiritualism. It's a semi-underground phenomenon. It's outside of the Judeo-Christian mainstream. It's inherently critical of it, the way it you know, positions itself. Hashish was part of, was a great interest in the American spiritualist scene, in large part because of Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was a mulatto, intellectual, kind of an amateur bathtub chemist who mix up patent medicines, which he sold on a speaker. So, you know, the time people would go around and say, hey, are you buy your thing? And someone would stagger up on crutches, usually faking it, throw away the crutch, and went up, you know, drink the thing. This is the kind of stuff that Beverly, I'm not saying he was a, a uh, huckster in that way, but what he purported to, what he was doing was selling a hashish-infused tincture that he claimed to have, uh, you know, a unique formula for helping people with their sexual problems. He made a bunch of money this way. Uh, apparently, he, he traveled a lot. He went to Europe. That's where he first came in contact with the medicine of immortality, as the hashish, the paste, the green paste was called in uh, North Africa. The Arab Damoesque was the name of it, and it medicine of immortality. In his travels, uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph encountered hashish, and you know, I think it was in France. I don't know if he went to North Africa, actually, but certainly it was when he was traveling uh, as part of the same trip that he encountered um, uh, hashish-infused pastries, and he wrote about it in spectacular ways, again, eating it, which has a more powerful effect, almost like LSD or natural mushrooms, more so than you're smoking a bowl, generally. Um, and so people who were using it in this context in the 19th century were really getting high. Uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, uh, uh, in, in some ways, he bequeathed hashish to the world of, of American spiritualism, uh, which was dominated later in the 19th centuries by uh, Madame Blavatsky. And, uh, and she herself is purported, at least by some accounts, I think they kind of want to whitewash the reputation of her in the whoever holds the keys to the Theosophical Society now. Yeah, they don't particularly like to go into this part of her, her uh, mesmeric trances. Well, how did she get there? You know? She was getting into the hashish, and then she would go, you know, she, uh, she was quite prolific, right? These almost inscrutable, you know, volumes, The Secret Doctrine, and then, you know, another one with all about, you know, the Atlantis under the ocean, and the, the big age before that, the secret, you know, it was wild stuff. Uh, uh, but definitely uh, uh, hashish was, was an important part of her writing mechanism. Uh, and it was because she identified with this so strongly, and it was so blunt in her positive assessments of the hashish experience, uh, it causes the Theosophical Society today, such as it is, it's not a lot going on there necessarily, but they kind of want to whitewash that part of her history. And so they don't like to emphasize that part of it. And of course, in Germany, you have Walter Benjamin, a different kind of writer, brilliant, brilliant social critic. A literary critic, kind of, it's been described as a, 
uh, Marxist mystic or mystic Marxist, I don't know what comes first, but his writing in the German language about hashish was uh, quite amazing. And there's an interesting story there. He's in the 1920s, he's Jewish. Uh, the Nazis are taking over, he has to flee. He eventually commits suicide uh, to avoid being captured by the Gestapo in France. But meanwhile, the, the, the doctor, the social psychologist, the, the Jewish uh, doctor that gave him the hashish as part of an experiment in Germany, social psychology was associated with an effort to help working class drug addicts, uh, you know, soldiers, ex-soldiers who were down and out. It was a phenomenon in, in, in uh, the Weimar Republic. There was a lot of drug issues. And, and so, so these social psychiatrists were looking at hashish uh, as a curative, and that's the context in which Benjamin uh, experimented with it in brilliant writing. But the Jewish social psychiatrist, the doctor in, in, in Weimar, uh, Germany, who, who turned Benjamin on to hashish, uh, Fritz Frankel, he, he had to flee, of course, when the Nazis came to power as well. He fled to Mexico, where he fell in with the circle of, of uh, turned-on revolutionaries, including, uh, well, he was tight with Leon Trotsky, who I don't know if he was getting hot, but certainly Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo were, and they were all part of a, of a very interesting left-wing revolutionary circle in Mexico that was very friendly to hashish. Uh, but again, I don't know if Trotsky had anything to do with it. So in, in all, all these different uh, uh, countries in Europe, uh, the literary traditions were very bound up in, in, with, with cannabis. Uh, of course, later in the United States, you have the Beats, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, uh, we celebrated uh, pot smoking, tea smoking in their in their literature. Burroughs attributed many of the scenes and naked lunch to his use of cannabis as a creative stimulus. Um, Ginsburg wrote parts of How under the influence of hashish, or, or weed probably more more likely than hashish. Kerouac, I mean, he was excessive with all drugs. He smoked 16 joints a day in Mexico. He's notorious, you know. So drugs are very important part of the beat scene, and, but uh, the beats, of course, are very important of our history because they, in some ways, are the transition belt between uh, a more marginalized uh, cultural uh, relationship with uh, cannabis in the jazz scene, it's an African-American scene, Latino scene, but it's not a mainstream white scene. And you had this is segregated America, and it was the beats that really took the jazz cats urban and brought it into mainstream America, and they were the key transition. Mission built in that regard. Of course, Ginsburg, Alan Ginsburg was a, in some ways the prototype pot activist. And your pot is fun. And the first public anti-marijuana demonstration was on the East Coast. It was the first. And you know that, that picture resounded around the world in the 60s. Pot is a reality. Pot is fun. Um, so he wasn't just a, a, someone who wrote poems about uh, uh, marijuana, uh, LSD, mescaline, and so forth. Uh, but influenced so many people. Uh, I remember speaking to Michael Aldrich, you know, a very eminent uh, cannabis scholar. He said the first time he saw the word marijuana in print was in Ginsburg's poetry. It was that kind of thing. So it's not that just that they, they wrote about it, they used it to write, they, they, but they became advocates, and that's a very important part of the story, too. Hashish has played a very interesting role in the Islamic world, the Muslim world. The Ottoman Empire was the empire for a long time. It, 1300s for several hundred years. But, but the relationship with marijuana was kind of mixed because sometimes it would be uh, uh, everything was cool and relaxed, and other times you get some crazy sheik or amir you know, running the show for 12 years and bans it. But never did they 
ever banned the medicinal use of cannabis and was always recognized in, um, as, in the Muslim world. Even if sometimes politically and legally it was you know, going back and forth. In, and you know, it comes uh, the, when you follow the trajectory of cannabis from its presumed origins in the Kush, the southern uh, Himalayan foothills, uh, and just all around, not just the southern, but the, the, the Himalayan foothills on both sides, and spreads from there northward and southward. But southward it goes into India, uh, northward China. In both countries, it has a very important uh, medicinal uh, role in, in, in the cultures, uh, a religious role, ceremonial role more so than literature, because literature wasn't really being written. You know, the, the first pharmacopoeia from Emperor Shen Nung, I think 2700 BC, um, he's the emperor that bequeathed tea. You know, he taught humanity about how to drink tea, or whatever, you know, that you should drink tea. Quite an amazing thing. Well, it was only years later, hundreds of years later, that they compiled the pharmacopoeia that had been assembled in his time under his supervision, and cannabis was considered one of the half dozen elixirs of mortality. And it was said to be a very unusual uh, medicinal herb. Ma was very unusual as a medicinal herb because it had both strong yin and yang energies. And so now, thousands of years later, what the scientists discover? The cannabis. It's a dialectical plant. It has compounds with opposite effects. There's THC, psychoactive, CBD, non-psychoactive. They mix in interesting ways. They make each other more therapeutic in certain ways, yet they have opposite effects in other ways. So there it is, yin and yang energies. Uh, and so much in modern science today, which is going, as uh, amazing breakthroughs are going on in terms of understanding the brain, as a result ultimately of research that began as research into how cannabis affected the brain. Um, but the science very much confirms the wisdom of the ancients. That's what I find. And that, uh, so in, in China, you had the first mention, the first pharmacopoeia ever written, the first assemblage as a medical text, mentions cannabis as a very important medicine. Um, and in India, much the same, but it was also more pronounced as a, uh, in a religious context, and just a ceremonial, everyday context. And it was more psychoactive, it was more southern. Uh, you know, China, it kind of went from there in the hemp direction into northern Europe, into, northern, into Russia and so forth, and migrated that way. But from the south, it goes from India through Persia and into the Muslim world. And, and again, it has this ambiguous relationship. But, uh, and from the Muslim world, it goes in part into uh, because it became colonized ultimately by uh, France, much of the North Africa, uh, the, that the hashish or the goes into Europe, and uh, uh, it also goes into South into Africa. And from Africa, seeds on the slave ships come to the United States. So what what comes over in Africa? It's an oral tradition. It's a, a, a musical tradition. It's it's jazz. It's the rhythms of jazz that come over on the slave ships with the cannabis seeds, and from the same exact cultures that. You know, jazz historians trace to the uh, the rituals of uh, and, the, and the percussive beats and the, and, and, the, and the and the fire burning and the and the and the, and the cannabis being placed on the fires. People, you know, this is part of the tradition where jazz ultimately comes from. So you could talk. Of, I see that as a kind of literature, but it's a rhythmic literature. It's a spoken word. You know, it's scatting. It's very primal. And um, uh, there's no coincidence that the the, the the slaves that were the people that were brought over and, and made into slaves, when they brought these seeds with them, they brought this whole they brought a cultural context with them too, and it was the context of what become jazz and blues. And, and uh, I learned recently that there were slave ships going to Mexico, not just initially it was going to Brazil, what became Brazil, 
and in South America, and, um, and of course into North America as well. But Mexico apparently they brought the seeds on the on the slave ships, to, and and that's how cannabis first came to Mexico, which is kind of a new wrinkle. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and why does cannabis become illegal? You know, it was uh, a politically opportune. Uh, it was bureaucratic self-interest at play. It was self-preservation. Um, also, racism. I think those are the two main factors. I mean, there's speculation that you know, Dupont wanted to suppress hemp, uh, and Hearst wanted to monopolize the newspaper. Uh, uh, you know. Paper access because he had a lot of forests and so forth, and you know there may in fact exactly been what's going on. You had Dupont seeing a potential competitor to its synthetic chemicals and wanted to squash it. The problem is with that, there's no evidence. It's an interesting speculation, and again, perhaps a, perhaps it's right on the money, perhaps it's a bullseye. But we know for sure there was a, a racist campaign involved that the cannabis was associated with. Um, marginalized ethnic groups and, and in an overtly racist way with, with sexual tinge, you know, uh, uh, fears you know, being played upon them. Uh, black men and white women would have, would have, there would be sexual contact with them uh, induced by cannabis use. And this was the, and, and it's a threat to women, threat to children, or the assassin of youth. This is a theme that keeps being played out in American culture, even though the drug warriors are losing at this point. They still play that one incessantly. Um, so, you know, why? I think, I think, to me, that is sufficient to explain what happened. That Harry Anslinger was facing the potential elimination of his entire new department, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, instituted in the early 1930s, after pro alcohol prohibition ended. They spin off, and some of the prohibition officers are incorporated into this new organization, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. It's the Depression. There's budget cutbacks. They're looking at this thing as to do nothing. It's a, basically a bullshit agency. Cut it. Well, he has to come up with a reason to convince his Congress there's this terrible threat, this reefer man, this, this assassin of youth, you know, raping white women, black. This was what was going on, and the culture was being pushed out by both the government and the media through the Hearst papers, because he has his own reasons to go after marijuana. He was an anti-Mexican bigot. This was the Mexican-American drug of choice, recreant of choice, so forth and so on. Um, and there are other things going on as well. But, uh, so, but to me, that's enough to explain why things played out. In Congress, you've got a bunch of idiots there and what's going on. You know, Roosevelt, he's got other things on his mind and you know, a little heavier right now. There's fascism coming up in Europe. And there's this fascist pig, Harry Anslinger, doing the same thing that Hitler's doing, playing really literally the same. That's what the drug, the drug war... Uh, propaganda. There's a direct correspondence time-wise. It's happening at the same time. And in terms of the way they uh, scapegoat the other in racist tones, in this case it's the marijuana smoker, the deviant drug user. Um, and, in, and in Germany, it's the, they had a word for it, uh, the, the drug war to make to keep the race clean. You know, exactly. It, it, it's, uh, it's a striking correspondence, and it should be pointed. The drug war is a very much a fascist kind of phenomenon. It, that's its roots, and it's. Uh, and it's persisted in American society, even when the, the myths get discredited, they seem to be like a vampiric thing, you can't kill them. You need ultra garlic or kryptonite. And they just keep going on, they keep being reborn as reefer man this light. Yeah, now we're, you know, it still causes schizophrenia, you know, all this stuff for which there's no science for it, but they keep churning it out.
the cannabis in music is a powerful, strong leitmotif and smoke signals. I do a lot on music there. All kinds of music, uh, cannabis is so central to it. You think about jazz, of course, Louis Armstrong, notorious. The, the whole Viper scene it was a, that the cannabis was celebrated in the lyrics to him and, 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 uh, uh, by many jazz musicians. And it certainly influenced this kind of bouncy rhythm that jazz acquired in the Viper music genre, this specific subgenre of, of jazz was very significant. Uh, because Louis Armstrong was so essential a figure as a viper, not just as a jazz musician, uh, it, it lent a kind of cultural, you know, it gave it some street cred, but more than street cred because Louis Armstrong was planetary cred. You know, he was huge. He was a, the first, first black superstar. Uh, his music was listened to every day all over the world. And that he was so intimately associated with, with cannabis was significant in and of itself. And you know, many other jazz musicians, uh, certainly. But not just jazz. You look at every genre of popular music today, you see, you know, uh, cannabis is, is central to the experience. Country music, Willie Nelson, you know, we say more. Uh, I mean, uh, he was said he's credited cannabis with saving his life, uh, as because as a, as a harm reduction thing, he, he he started smoking more and he's drinking less. And finally, he wasn't drinking it at all. He got off cigarettes, and he's very very open about that. There's, there's no there's no uh, doubt about that. Rock and roll, when they come on, the Beatles. Uh, getting turned on by Bob Dylan, kind of part of the folk scene in the late 50s, and it was sort of mixed in with the civil rights movement and so forth, and the kind of new left where it emerged from culturally, very much influenced by, uh, by cannabis, again, because the beats are a part of that. Um, you know, Dylan turning on the Beatles, that's a signature moment in the 1960s, the first time the Beatles smoked pot at a hotel in New York City. So August 28th, 1964, exactly one year after Bob Dylan played at the big march on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, Dylan played uh, uh, his, what was it, Peter Paul and Mary song, the answer my for Blowing in the Wind. Dylan sang Blowing in the Wind at that uh, festival, and Dylan, Dylan was a pot smoker, and he was part of a pot smoking scene. He was influenced by Reading Ginsburg uh, and the Beats, he says so explicitly. and. Um, uh, the Beatles, I mean, you know, they're the biggest rock and roll band in the world, but it wasn't just the Beatles. The cannabis was everywhere in rock, the rock scene in the 60s. Uh, and, you know, I mean, take another hit. <laughs> Don't bogart that What, my friend. I mean, you go on and on and cite examples, you know. But then the Beatles, I'd love to turn you on. I mean, this is the Beatles telling you. I think this is the greatest rock album ever. You know, <laughs> Sgt. Pepper's and they're singing, I'd love to turn you on. And it wasn't just about LSD. It was, the Beatles were part of a, of a social movement, uh, countercultural movement, anti-war movement uh, in Great Britain uh, that had been very much involved, uh, infused with cannabis and, and psychedelics, uh, just as it was in the United States. Um, what other kind of reggae? I mean, come on. <laughs> Bob Marley. Uh, uh, yeah, it's marijuana music. Hip-hop. Snoop Dogg. You know, uh, again, cannabis. Very, very prominent in the whole hip-hop scene. The, the whole, the, you could say that the, the, the cannabis renaissance after the, the reefer sadness in the 1980s, the, the, the reefer renaissance in the 1990s, in part, you know, uh, catalyzed by Jack Herrera in his book, uh, uh, his book about hemp and its unified heat field theory of hemp. Um, but in the 1990s, hip hop and, and, and the whole cannabis scene emerging together in such a powerful way. 
to me, that's where the drug war is lost. On that, and that's it's a big turning point in a way. Uh, just when there was the worst with Reagan at the very end there, Jack's with his book preaching next to the Washington Monument, high on acid with his <laughs> his videotape loop of of, of uh, uh, victory through hemp, playing over and over again while he's preaching like a madman. You know, <laughs> next to this with something. During the last year of Reagan presidency, to me, that's the turning point, right there. You know, it's the lowest, and but it's where it starts to swing back. Um, and uh, yeah, music's part of it. And the medical marijuana scene really takes off after that. Of course, that's the driving force in the 90s and a lot of And medical marijuana and hip-hop on, on the cultural side, to me, it's, they're, they're happening together. And it, it, it means we won, right? That's, that's a, this, that was like the DMV info of the, of the uh, Culture war, drug war, in my opinion, where they that side lost, and now slowly it gets the politics is catching up. It always takes the politics to catch up, long after the culture war. Um, you know, cannabis has a rich history as a medicine um, all over the world, many different cultures, including the United States. As of the late, second half of the 19th century, really, is when the cannabis tinctures uh, take hold in the culture and become possibly the most widely used medicine in medicines in the culture or have cannabis as probably one of uh, perhaps its main ingredient or mixed with uh, opium or cocoa or whatever. It could be mixed with different things. But cannabis was a dominant uh, uh, component of American medicine, the patent medicine era in the late 19th century. Um, it falls into, uh, I wouldn't say disrepute, but kind of, uh, it, it begins to fade because of two factors, even before prohibition, uh, which eliminated medicinal uses of cannabis, and that's one of the great, great tragedies of prohibition that's implemented in 1937. Um, but before that, you had uh, the uh, invention of the syringe, and but you can't inject oil-based compounds with the syringe. Syringe and cannabinoids are oils, they're lipids. Um, opiates are, are, are water side. So with the invention of the syringe, the discovery of uh, oh, the, uh, uh, morphine, the creation of morphine, it, it, made, it eclipsed cannabis as a painkiller, for which it was widely being used uh, in, the, in the 19th century, because of, because of the power of morphine. Um, even though morphine and opiates don't address all kinds of pain, actually cannabis has a broader range in terms of the kinds of pain it can uh, ameliorate. Um, still, you know, opiates are great painkillers. Um, why does it fall into disrepute? Well, first of all, it should be said in the, in the, in the dispensatory of the U.S., uh, it, when cannabis is described, it described literally for 100 different ailments, which is phenomenal, the range of ailments that was being uh, recommended for, uh, which again is very much in sync with what people experience today and what, uh, what scientists and what the doctors in California uh, you know, discovered firsthand when California legalized marijuana. And they can actually begin to do certain kinds of research, not fairly sanctioned research, but they can observe um, you know, what's happening with patients. Um, you know, why did it fall into disrepute? I mean, partly it was those uh, cultural factors with the morphine and, and the uh, and, uh, hypodermic syringe, uh, but the, the, the legal, the prohibition has a lot to do with it. Uh, it ended the use of cannabis as a medicine, or it drove it underground, and it had to be rediscovered. And the key figure in my, in my mind that, that facilitated this rediscovery of the medicinal uses of cannabis, which had been buried uh, when uh, prohibition was implemented, but the key guy is Dr. Todd Nicorea in, in, uh, uh, in 
physician in the United States who um, was briefly employed, ironically, by the U.S. government, by the National Institute of Mental Health, to oversee its marijuana research in the 1960s, since a lot of young people were taking marijuana, including sons and daughters of congressmen, you know, things like that. They started to get weird about it. What's happening with my son? Does this stuff, you know, does this damage your brain? What's going on? They, Actually, the government wanted there to be serious research into marijuana for a very brief moment, and they brought on Amigurea. But that, I don't think they realized where he was quite coming from, because he was already very sympathetic to cannabis. He had, uh, was a, a user himself. Um, and he went there very, very open-minded. He thought he was going to do great stuff. They wouldn't let him, but what he did do was scour the depths of the National Library of Medicine and rescued all these old documents. That, you know, literally gathering dust on a shelf. And he found the you know, original uh, medical paper written by the you know, O'Shaughnessy, that was published in 1842, the first account in Western medicine literature of hashish as, as a therapeutic agent. Um, and, uh, he, and, he, and he found a whole bunch of reports from the 1850s and, 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 and beyond, and, and, and compiled this in, in, a, in a volume called Marijuana Medical Papers which is almost like a textbook of all the things you would never learn in medical school. Uh, just the, you know, articles spoke for themselves. So he, he, he really kind of triggered the beginning of a, of a rebirth of interest in medical, the medicinal use of marijuana in, in the 1970s. When I look at it culturally, um, the, the first group to really get into using it, the first phenomenon of, of marijuana as a, for, used as a medicine in, in the United States, in North America, was midwives using it as a, for, as a birthing aid. Uh, Stephen Gaskin's farm in the tent, that's what they were doing, you know. And even before uh, uh, Robert Randall got, you know, won that uh, Titanic court battle where he won the right to use the only medicine that helped stop his glaucoma, which was cannabis, arguing medical necessity. This is in 1976. Even earlier, these women were very consciously using cannabis as a birthing aid. I see that as a well, it's actually a traditional usage of cannabis going back centuries. It's always been part of the midwifery's um, uh, medicine bag, as it were, part of the herbal uh, armament, what would you call it, uh, the medicine chest. Um, so, but then you have Robert Randall, uh, and he, he wins this very important court case, and uh, about a couple of dozen medical necessity cases came forward in the United States and won the right to uh, use them as a medical exceptions to use cannabis as medicine, they would be supplied by the government 300 pre-roll, really gnarly, you know, skanky cigarettes. <laughs> I've seen, been around poor, or, you know, poor these poor people, they used to smoke this stuff. It's the worst cannabis you can imagine. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, that's what it is. They get it from the government. The fact that they still get it from the government today speaks volumes about the schizophrenic relationship that the federal government has with cannabis, saying it has no medical value, while at the same time, supplying what I think is now only four people left uh, who are grandfathered in after they stopped this program, the Compassionate IND program, that was implemented as a result of Robert uh, Randall's heroic efforts initially. Uh, but that, you know, that's an important part of the medical marijuana scene, but really the key turning point is AIDS, San Francisco, and the fact that it was the only thing that was helping people with AIDS, and they were dropping like flies. You know, I was living in San Francisco when AIDS was first discovered, in the early 1980s, people were getting sick, they didn't know why, and then all of a sudden this weird AIDS when it incurable, and the only thing that helped was cannabis. It was the only thing when, the, when these very potent uh, proteus inhibitor drugs were 
finally invented that could step, you know, that keep the HIV count down. Um, the only way to, you know, keep these medicines down, they were so toxic, you'd throw up, was to smoke marijuana. So it, it caught on like wildfire. Uh, the cannabis as a medicinal substance uh, was, uh, you know, emerged big time in, in San Francisco initially and then in the rest of California as a result of Dennis Perone and his efforts uh, with the Cannabis Buyers Club in San Francisco and then there were other emulators and it grew from there. But it, that was really the break. It was a unique situation in San Francisco. The political establishment was okay, okay with it. Perone was willing to do whatever he, uh, whatever it took. Um, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he risked a lot to form this, to do this publicly. Um, and 10,000 people joined that club. Most of the people on staff were people with AIDS. Most of the, at least half the members were people with AIDS. And it was an amazing thing that went on, an amazing humanitarian phenomenon. Dennis is an amazing character uh, in that way. Um, but that to me is the turning point, not just medical marijuana, but Mar the turning point of marijuana in American culture. As I step back and look at the history, uh, it's kind of implicit in smoke signals the way I wrote it up, but I didn't say in smoke signals this was the case. It really is structured like a, 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 like a screenplay where you have two plot points. That's your classic screenplay, how it's structured. You know, half an hour into the play, some event happens that sends the story spinning off in a different direction unexpectedly. And then about 30 minutes before it ends, a second event happens, spins the plot again in another direction that you wouldn't expect. So the first plot point for cannabis in, in the Americas, in my mind, is the 1960s. Totally unexpected that millions of young people would be smoking pot. <laughs> when, I mean, when it was uh, made illegal less than 30 years earlier. Uh, and then uh, the second plot point is, is medical marijuana in California and the breakthrough in 1996 and the Proposition 215, which to my mind, what we're seeing now in the States with the legalization measures passing in Washington and Colorado. To me, in many ways, that's the culmination of what happened in 1996, what Dennis did. It, it more so a culmination of something than the beginning of something. You know, and, uh, but we'll see. You know, it's a very dynamic situation now with cannabis and the shifting cultural landscape. But to my mind, uh, uh, the drug war was fought and we won. <laughs> the drug war is lost, cannabis won. Cannabis, wherever it has come to in a different culture, as it's migrated around the world uh, because it was so valuable to people, you know, from culture to culture, from society to society, starting in the Kush, you know, going into India and Persia and the Muslim world in Europe and across the slave ships, across the ocean, into the Americas. Wherever it went, it was never rejected. It was always made part of the culture. Even if it became controversial in the culture, it was still uh, adopted by the people, at least some segment of people. So that it stayed there, and then it would move on to other parts of the world, other cultures, and cannabis conquered the world. So you know the drug warrior lost; they can't beat it.